0: Setting aside the fact that, like, every single state has been admitted to the union That's for what I was going to say. <laughs>
1: like, as if we were inventing other states because we were just feeling incredibly altruistic. Like, yeah. every addition to the union has been political, every yeah. single one. And I think the, you know, Heather Cox Richardson had a really good thing this morning about the addition of Maine and how, you know, the Missouri Compromise and all that, like, all of these decisions to add states. has been political to imply that, like, well, because this is political, then we shouldn't do it. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. In our main segment today, you're going to hear from Megan Hatcher-Mays, who is an activist working toward D.C. statehood. Since the House has just passed a bill supporting D.C. statehood, it will head over to the Senate. And we think this conversation is going to give you a timely look just at history and how we've added states and why D.C. isn't a state, what the impact of that will be. Hopefully you'll hear some things that you've not thought about before in that conversation. As we begin today and as we close in our Outside of Politics segment, we're going to pick up some threads from conversations that we have started on Patreon. And I think that these threads that we're picking up will show you that we have just a wonderful and really kind of intimate community there where we discuss things very openly, very vulnerably, things that are giving us pause, things that we know are kind of working on your minds and hearts, too. Our listener, Christine, put it best when she said that it took her a while to become a patron but it is the best money per month she's ever spent. She said, the community here is so supportive and drama free. I'm happy that you all get to do what you love to do full time. Your love of doing this comes out and shows in each and every episode and we're all better for it. Thank you so much, Christine, and to everyone who makes that possible. And we hope that you enjoy this conversation that we're gonna start now about vaccines and just the tension of celebrating the vaccine distribution success that we've had so far in the United States while acknowledging that that distribution success is not happening all over the world that us holding on to vaccines here in the United States for citizens who are vaccine hesitant in some cases and outright opposed to vaccines in others really provokes feelings of some kind of strange guilt and just weirdness
1: yeah the situation in India right now is what is provoking a lot of this conversation not just on our patreon page but across the country they have registered the fifth day in a row of over 300,000 plus cases in India. Now, most experts believe that this is a massive undercount of cases and that the death reports, which are about 1,700 deaths per day, are also massively undercounted. I saw a Twitter thread from a Financial Times reporter who estimated that the death count could be as much as 10 times higher than what is being reported and beyond the statistics that are always hard to comprehend and to understand there are heartbreaking stories and social media posts and videos and on the ground reporting coming from india doctors weeping because they do not have enough oxygen for their patients um families distraught and mass funeral pyres like it's just it's a truly truly tragic situation and you know Something we've talked about on Patreon is that in classic American fashion, you know, I, I think for myself, I saw the positive trends in our country and I just assumed it would roll out positively across the globe. And that has not been the case in the surge in India is reminding us all that no matter how well we are able to produce, manufacture Distribute vaccines in our own countries, in wealthier countries, that the coronavirus does not care. They, it does not care about borders. And as long as it is allowed to continue to spread and mutate and cause such human suffering, then none of us are done.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible,
1: budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And
2: in India differs from the United States crucially in that many of its hospitals do not have an independent power system for medical oxygen because they don't have the sort of uninterrupted access to power supply that we just take for granted and expect everywhere in the United States. So medical oxygen tanks coming into India are being greeted like they are priceless. And Mm. there's so much work being done to try to share that oxygen with India. Countries around the world are stepping up because there's a recognition that what happens in India is gonna affect the world for a number of reasons. As you mentioned, Sarah, that mutation of the virus is part of it. Another aspect of it is that we sometimes refer to India as the world's pharmacy. The manufacturing Mm -hmm. of pharmaceuticals in India is a key part of their economy and something that many countries throughout the world rely on. India is critical to vaccinating the world. And COVID-19 hitting India in the fashion that it is going to slow that down, not just for India, but for lots of countries. And and so the ripple effects of this surge in cases, it's hard to overstate the ramifications it could have for the world. We're going to link an Atlantic piece about just all of the ways that India is inextricably linked to the world's mm-hmm. fight against COVID-19.
1: Well, and I want to say, like, the idea that we should only care um, because it will mutate, It could put us at risk. I really reject that. You know, I mean, I think that that is such a limited and harmful way to think about COVID spread in other parts of the world. You know, I think that we live in a global environment and not just as it plays out in the face of a pandemic, but we, on a day to day basis, as average Americans, are very limited in our capacity to understand how inextricably linked we are to the rest of the world in every single way, from the products we buy to the life-saving medicines and technologies we use. And, you know, and also, you know, not just on a pragmatic level, but on just a human level, I think that suffering on this level and other parts of the world impacts us all. And I think, you know, this was this was a big criticism of the Biden administration because India is the world's pharmacy. We had an export ban and they were having trouble getting many of the ingredients they used to produce those life-saving techniques. And the ban was, you know, out of an abundance of caution and a prioritization of our own manufacturing and distribution. But to me, it just feels like in, in the pandemic, in so many ways, has exposed our limitations. And we talk about this all the time, right? Like We're seeing the limitations of so many institutions and the fragility of so many institutions. And it's like in a moment like this, it feels like this whole nation state idea, <laughs> we've put all our chips on, like only serves us so well in certain areas. And that the the idea that we should all really protect our own and and prioritize our own populations, which I'm not necessarily arguing against. And I think being able to hold the complexity of prioritizing your own population while still participating in global efforts is hard. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't want to dismiss how difficult and hard that is. But, you know, I, as long as there are surges and, crises like we are seeing in India, then the pandemic can't end. And that means people continue to suffer no matter where you live. And that's what we all want. And I think prioritizing supplies and expertise and oxygen for areas of the world that really need it has to be the new top priority
2: also just requires a reexamination of what it means to be an american right because if you ask mm. are there american interests in aiding india through its covid-19 fight unquestionably yes scientifically from a foreign policy perspective from an economic perspective absolutely and there are so many americans who have very close family members living in india mm-hmm. And they are suffering knowing that their families are sick. We have listeners right now who are suffering because people they love, they cannot get to to help. Even if they could be there, they couldn't be with them. Exactly what many of us Mm -hmm. have gone through here in the United States throughout the pandemic. And we are at a point now where vaccine supply is not the problem in the United States anymore. Vaccine demand is the problem. And what are we to do when we have People here in the United States who don't wanna take the vaccine are missing the second dose of the vaccine for a variety of complex reasons. And we have all of this supply that we could be sharing with other parts of the world in ways that do inure to the benefit of the United States as defined in a whole host of ways. I think it's it's just time. And I think the administration is working on this, but I, I would like to see that work
1: accelerate. It is time to share. You know, in fairness, there is real difficulty here um, when you are thinking about this from the perspective of nation states and the leadership in those nation states and the difficulty of offering help where it might not be wanted. You know, I think that honestly, if the administration had reached out months ago when Prime Minister Modi was declaring success in the face of COVID, it wouldn't have been well received. Um, I think that there was real mistakes made. You know, he declared that they were they had had success. He opened up to he was hosting himself hosting political rallies, suppressing criticism of the government's handling of the pandemic. I mean, these are real issues and it certainly complicates any efforts um, on behalf of the Biden administration to offer help or resources. Now, I don't think that's an excuse but I do think it's a really important reality to acknowledge.
2: 100%. And the political reality here in the United States is complex as well. You know, I worked with someone once who I felt that this person never wanted to actually do work, but also didn't want anyone else to do it either in a way that that person might get credit for or be acknowledged for mm-hmm. um, or, or get a seat at the table different than this person because they were doing the work. And I think that we have that version of things going on among lots of parts of the American population, because I think that President Biden knows and is correctly calculating that if the United States starts shipping huge quantities of vaccine outside of the country, even people who are never going to get it, maybe especially people who were never going to get it, are gonna have a political field day with that. And that is a huge problem. You don't want it, but you don't want someone else to have it either. Um, And I think we need to talk directly about what's going on in our politics when that kind of consideration holds us back from
1: participating in the world in this way. And that political reality is also really applicable when we talk about vaccine hesitancy and the criticisms of the administration that they have not been promoting the vaccine enough. And I think the real difficulty in the same way that if the Biden administration had come out and tried to take credit and put their name all over the American Recovery Act that would have increased opposition from certain sectors of the American population the same sectors of the American population that exhibit vaccine hesitancy like would have you would have seen increased hesitancy had the administration leaned all the way into this sort of like public relations campaign to promote the vaccine that's not to say that i don't think that there should be any public health campaigns To decrease hesitancy. But I think that is a very, very hard needle to thread, because if it becomes about the government is promoting this vaccine, well, then the same sectors that are hesitant to get it are going to become even more hesitant. And I think that's that's really difficult. And I think, you know, focusing on this massive, complex problem of manufacture and distribution was easy in the face of dealing with. This hesitancy, particularly as it exists in, in certain certain segments of the American population, like white evangelicals, like strong Republicans. And I think that that's really hard.
2: And I think there is an element of recognizing, one, the Biden administration is doing PR. They're just doing it quietly and smartly and coordinating mm-hmm. with local community groups and churches in areas where vaccine hesitancy is strong for reasons that they can understand and kind of get to rationally on a broader scale. It's like all public relations has that backlash element. Because even though you don't have the president necessarily every single day hammering home that message in a strong, coordinated, you know, splashy way, I, I do think he's hammering at that message every day, just not in kind of the way we might imagine that he could. I've seen people on my timelines who are most aggressively against the vaccine, very frustrated that Facebook has a sign up for the vaccine like Mm. there are just people who don't want to hear it from from anyone right george w bush isn't an effective messenger anymore the fact that trump has gotten the vaccine seems to be kind of just well whatever i still i'm still not going to do it i mean i i don't know how you reach certain populations and then i don't know what you do with the fact that those populations still are going to be mad when the headlines come out that we're shipping it worldwide so it's a conundrum and if you are moved by what's going on in india i do want to make sure that we mention our longtime listener and friend savitha has put together a very thorough list of reputable organizations to donate to to help the crisis in india she has pulled out targeted ways to donate if you're interested in helping with children or with food and water or interested in targeted relief for queer people she has all kinds of resources she's updating it frequently So we'll put the link to her Google Doc that she generously shared with this community in the show notes.
1: And on the topic of public health, we have a great breakthrough for our moment of hope in today's episode, which is that the same team uh, behind AstraZeneca's vaccine at the University of Oxford has released early trials that show a major breakthrough in the fight against malaria. They have developed a malaria vaccine that has proven to be 77 percent effective, You know, malaria kills more than 400,000 people a year, mostly children. And so any sort of, any breakthrough in developing a vaccine that could start to chip away at that massive global health crisis is to be celebrated. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour, Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, dot com slash pantsuit.
2: Next up, you're gonna hear from Megan Hatcher Mays about DC statehood. Before we launch into that conversation, we wanna be honest and say that DC statehood in the Senate is a very steep climb. It's something that would likely require the filibuster to be eliminated. We're gonna talk a lot more about the political landscape as we get to the hundredth day of the Biden administration this week, as we have the president's joint address to Congress. So on Friday's show, we're gonna talk more about the filibuster Where should we be working toward bipartisan compromise? Where is it wiser for Democrats and Republicans to kind of go their own ways? That'll be on Friday. But for now, let's take a deep, close look at D.C. statehood with Megan Hatcher-Mays.
1: We are thrilled to be here today with Megan Hatcher-Mays, who is Indivisible's Director of Democracy Policy and leading the organization's advocacy for democracy reform. She's previously served as an aide to Washington, D.C.'s delicate and true, I would say, Washington, D.C. powerhouse, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Just an American legend, that one. <laughs> We're so thrilled to have you here today. I'm particularly excited to have you here today because I live in Kentucky now, Megan, but I lived in Washington, D.C. without representation myself for five years. Oh, so this is understand. an issue close, uh-huh, issue close <laughs> to my heart. So let's just start with that. Sure. Let's start with how the people of Washington, D.C. are basically second class citizens.
0: Yes. Happy to start with that. Um, sad to start with that, but it's true. I think a lot of people have some misconceptions exactly mm-hmm. about D.C.'s status in this country. You know, it, this used to come up all the time when I worked for for Congresswoman Norton, where we would get letters from D.C. residents where they would show their I.D. in other states and they would say where is that? Is that part of Maryland? Where's your Maryland ID? Uh, You know, that sort of thing. So just to clear things up, uh, the District of Columbia is not a part of Maryland. It is Mm -hmm. the nation's capital. It is not a state. Um, A lot of people think, you know, oh, you get a bunch of money from the federal government, though. That is also not true. We get, you know, the same federal payments as other states, but we have no say over how our tax dollars are spent. We have a non-voting Delegate in the House. That's my former boss, Eleanor Holmes Norton. But we don't have any representation, voting or otherwise, in the Senate. So we don't, you know, have a say over who sits on the Supreme Court or whether or not the country should go to war or any of those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. We have no say. And the reason why is it's not that complicated. I mean, the city, the District of Columbia, is or used to be known as Chocolate City. Uh, because it was mostly Black. The overwhelming majority of the people who live here were Black. That's still true to this day. Uh, it's a plurality Black jurisdiction, but it's majority people of color that live here. So it's mostly not white people who live in the District of Columbia. And that has been kind of explicitly the reason why we have been disenfranchised. So, you know, yeah. we, we do our best, but we have no say in our own country's affairs.
1: Well, and I think the before we get to the history part, I think part of it is people think, well, you vote for president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. we do. That is true. But I just want to be like, I mean, how well do you feel represented when, especially when the president is not a member of your party, right? Like, mm-hmm. even when they are a member of your party, not having the ability to lobby a voting member of Congress yeah, is just so disempowering it it is and you
0: know it is true that we are able to vote for president and we have a couple of electoral votes but that's not even always been the case it wasn't until the 60s that there was an amendment passed that gave us a say in the electoral college and gave us a say in the presidential election so that is a relatively recent turn of events and you know it's it's hard i mean because we are not a state we uh, are under kind of like the exclusive jurisdiction of congress and the it means that the executive branch so that would be the president can kind of do whatever they want in the district without asking for permission first and so when the president is somebody like say Donald Trump or if congress is controlled by somebody like Kevin McCarthy and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world they can do a lot of damage to the district, like to our local mm. laws. So they have our final say over our budget. They can put um, what are called riders on our budget to prevent us from spending our local money. This is not local tax dollars that are raised through local spending. The Congress can jump in and say, oh, no, 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 you can't use that for healthcare or you can't use that to help, you know, immigrants in immigration proceedings. You can't use your money for that. Uh, and they've done it in the past. If Republicans are in control, we, we are at risk. And I think- You know, probably a lot of people saw last summer there were a lot of uh, Black Lives Matter protests here in the district after George Floyd was killed. Donald Trump sent the military and Mm -hmm. ICE and federal law enforcement into the city to kind of shut down these otherwise peaceful protests. He was gassing people so that he could go to a park across the street from the White House for a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. That's not something that the president can do in the states unless he gets permission from the governor. But they can do it here in the district because we're not a state.
1: Well, and prevent the calling of the National Guard on January 6th. That's right. Because the D.C. National Guard doesn't have the same authority that other National Guards have because it's not a state. That's right.
0: The mayor of the District of Columbia had attempted to call up the National Guard because there's this, you know, insurrection going on. There's this, you know, violent mob uh, walking through the city to get to the Capitol. And she had called up the National Guard. But all she can do is request the National Guard. She can't require them to come. The, it, she needs the president's approval to send in the National Guard. And Donald Trump didn't give it that day for well, many, and I was many shocked hours. By the,
1: the limits put on the commander of the National Guard himself, like where he <laughs> right. previous uh, previous like abilities he had had for rapid response were removed from him. Right.
0: Yeah. And you compare that to how, again, how Donald Trump responded to peaceful Black Lives Matter protests, you know, six months ago, compare that Mm -hmm. to a white supremacist mob, you know, trying to overthrow the government and there were nary a military person to be found. So, you know, very obviously there was a huge discrepancy between how he responds to people of color protesting and how he responds to white people protesting. And there was a huge, uh, difference in the response there that led to five people dying that day on the 6th.
2: Whenever I read about your mayor, I think about what an odd position that must be, how in some <laughs> ways it is it is more like a governor than a mayor mm-hmm. and in other ways it's more like a diplomat than a governor. <laughs> and I wonder what your observations are about that role and the people who've held it and, and that needle that you always have to thread.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, for the mayor... A lot of the, I think a lot of her day to day is uh, like any other mayor. You know, you're taking meetings and your your government, your administration is approving, you know, construction permits or what have you. You make, you make sure the water's clean, you know, all that stuff. But you know, DC has a lot of uh, situations where we have to provide services to the feds. Like so, speaking of water, <laughs> DC water provides water to the Capitol. Um, You know, we sometimes (laughs) I mean, they pay for it. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, and sometimes, you know, our police officers have to provide or our first responders, I should say, have to provide additional support for not just the presidential uh, motorcades, but diplomatic motorcades that sometimes that's local first responders who have to be a part of those things you know, that's something that like a, a normal governor might not or mayor would necessarily have to deal with. So it is kind of an odd position. So in a weird way, she's very powerful, like like a governor would be. But in other ways, she we're just like all of us. She's at the mercy of what Congress decides to interfere with and, and what they don't. So it's um, it's you're right. It's a very odd kind of combination of authorities.
1: I really liked the part of your piece in GQ where you kind of spoke a little bit to the role history has played in denying the district representation. Because I think, you know, I've heard this before. I heard this when I lived in Washington, D.C. from my family members in Kentucky, which is this idea of like, oh, well, no, that's how they said it. It was never supposed to be a state. And so we've just, this was just really a real fair-minded decision made early in the the forming of the United States. And so we just have to stick with it when the reality is the history is uh, much more complicated, goes way past the founding. And I thought the way you laid out, particularly, like you said, the role racism has played in denying mm. this district representation is really important for people to understand.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it is true that, you know, there's a reason why there's a federal district, right? And, um, you know, one of the reasons, actually kind of ironically, one of the reasons why we have this special carve out, this special federal district is because there was an angry mob that went to the original capital in Philadelphia of these, um Uh, I believe it was Revolutionary War soldiers went to get their pensions and because they hadn't been paid for fighting in the war and the the Congress was denying them these benefits and they locked all the members of Congress in the building. There was like a huge riot, huge insurrection, basically. And the members of Congress said, uh oh, we need to have a federal district that we have exclusive control over so that we cannot be kind of locked inside of a capital inside Mm. of a state. So then they kind of carved out a little plot of land using land from Virginia and from Maryland. And there was no intention for anybody to ever actually live here, but people do. So that's like the first thing people Mm. need to know is that the current form of the District of Columbia, I mean, if you were to bring Thomas Jefferson back to life and show him, you know, the 700,000 people actually live here, he would be shocked because that was also never the intention of the Founding Fathers. But as time went on, What happened was, you know, over the course of hundreds of years, more and more people started to come here. And those were mostly Black people that started to come here. Many of them were escaped slaves. Some of them had been freed. And a lot of people don't know this, but Abraham Lincoln emancipated the slaves in the District of Columbia about nine months before his federal emancipation proclamation. So very quickly, the district became a place where freed slaves and escaped slaves would come to be relatively safe and they could be free and work here. So that's sort of like the origination of Chocolate City, I guess you could say. So around that same time, you have, you know, Southern conservative white members of Congress looking around and saying, "Uh, you know, there are a lot of Black people here. We cannot give people that live here political power. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but that was, somebody said that basically word for word. We can't, this is too many Black people. And we're at risk if we give them political power. And even though the language has changed over the last 200 years or so, the sentiment has not changed. And as recently as, you know, the 1960s, you know, our mayor at the time sent up our budget to Congress for approval. And the chairman of the committee that approved the budget sent back a cart of watermelons to our Black Mm. mayor. So now, you know, they don't come right out and say, we want to deny political power to the black people and the people of color that live in the district of Columbia. But, you know, you'll have people like Tom Cotton saying stuff like, Oh, well you couldn't possibly make DC a state. There are no working class people in the district, which, uh, you know, for example, like Wyoming has minors and Arkansas has minors and DC doesn't have that. What they're really saying is DC doesn't have any white working class people. When Mm -hmm. you compare DC to Wyoming, You're comparing a plurality black jurisdiction with an overwhelmingly white jurisdiction. That's a choice that you're making when you make those kinds of comparisons. It's also, so what they're trying to do is two things, right? One, they're trying to paint DC as sort of this elite out of touch land of bureaucrats, which is Mm -hmm. not true. And two, they're trying to say that they're, you know the working class people who live here don't count, but they do. I mean, the working class people that we have here are largely black and people of color. Many of them work at the Capitol. Many of them were, you know, charged with cleaning up the mess that was left mm-hmm. on January 6 by this white supremacist mob. Those are working class people. Also, they're real Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of get into this debate about what part of America is real every four years or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's kind of how the dog whistle has changed over the course of time. It went from a sort of explicit racism to, oh, yeah, but there's no working class people here, which is just kind of a different way of saying, there are no white working class people like there are in my state mm. who vote for Republicans.
2: What do you say to people who make a purely political argument about DC statehood—that it is, you know, a part of a Democratic conspiracy because they can't <laughs> win the normal way, have <laughs> power in the Senate the normal way—that they just want um, they want this for Democratic control, um, not for any other reason grounded in actual representation of human beings.
0: Right. Um, yes, they do say that. Republicans say that a lot, that um, <laughs> it's a partisan power grab because the people that D.C. would elect, they'd all be Democrats. Right. I mean, that's probably true. I will I'll, we'll just be honest. A lot of Democrats live here. I think in the last election, I think Joe Biden got like 96 percent of the vote in the District of Columbia. So, yeah, it's probably true that we would elect a couple of Democrats to the Senate if we were made a state. That's just not a reason why you deny people access to democracy, mm-hmm. though. It just isn't. I mean, it's rooted in the same thing. Like we're we're seeing all the this like spate of sort of racist voter suppression bills happening in Georgia and Arizona, Wisconsin, Texas. It's all rooted in this thing of if you're not going to vote for me, then you don't get to vote.
1: Yeah, And that's
0: exactly where this is coming from with D.C. statehood. It's like, well, they're not going to vote for me. So then they shouldn't get to vote. If that's just not that's not what our democracy is supposed to be about, you know? And this idea that it's somehow a partisan power grab to give 700,000 people representation is bananas. I mean, what do you call denying 700,000 mm. people representation? Is that not a power grab? Is it not? You know, it, it is. It's just on the other side. But of course, for them, they feel entitled. You know, Republicans feel really entitled to power. So it's OK for them to deny us representation, but it's a partisan power grab if we're granted it. It's just a nonsensical, nonsensical argument. Well, you know, setting aside the fact that like every single state has been admitted to the union. That's what I was going to say,
1: like as if we were inventing other states because we were just feeling incredibly altruistic. Like every addition to the union has been political, every single one. And I think the, you know, Heather Cox Richardson had a really good thing this morning about the addition of Maine and how, you know, the Missouri Compromise and all that, like all of these decisions to add states. Has yeah. been political to imply that, like, well, because this is political, then we shouldn't do it is just. But I think we, we because it's been so long, I think really that's the issue. It's been so long since we added a state
0: mm-hmm.
1: that people um, I mean, especially just like people who weren't alive, you know, and just it's become like we got this nice round 50. It fits on the flag. <laughs> like <laughs> We've never really it feels like this is what the United States has always been, even though, of course, that's ludicrous. That people just can't get past Mm it.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, there's, you know, there's a reason why there's two Dakotas and not just one. I mean, it's all there's, you know, that's why that happened.
1: Um, And it's crowded. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: know, and that's so that's a good point. I mean, I think that, yeah, that's part of it, that there's this sort of like idea that the United States is is done now. We're all done. Mm hmm. And so we don't need to add any more stuff. There is some consternation about what the flag will look like. I definitely encourage anybody listening to look up a 51 star flag. You will not be able to tell the difference. They look exactly (laughs) the same. Um, But honestly, I mean, as a D.C. resident myself, Somebody may disagree with me about this, but I don't even care. I leave the flag the same. If that's the issue,
1: I don't <laughs> I care. I don't want the star. <laughs> I want a member of Congress.
0: That's right. I would like a vote in Congress. I do not care about the star. Yeah, I think that's part of it. It's been a long time. and It's weird to think of of change happening. People also think, oh, D.C. is so small, though, or whatever. It, you know, there's a hearing coming up next week. I definitely encourage people to listen if you have any like concerns about the health of a future state of D.C., We're all set. We're good to go. We have budget surpluses. Roads are clean. We've got snow plows. It's all good. It's going to (laughs) be fine. And you'll add a star to the flag and you won't even notice. I promise.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We were posting about the inauguration and sharing with people the story that, you know, the, the new president has multiple flags on the dais to represent how many states were in the union at the time the president's home state was admitted to the union. Mm. And I thought about how little we noticed that and how it is kind of strange that we've adopted this posture of being done. Mm. And I wanted to ask you in the vein of being done, how you view DC vis-a-vis Puerto Rico and other US territories. And do you think that we need to kind of tie those issues together? Or is D.C. so uniquely situated that it needs to be viewed differently?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think that the homework of statehood, right, is self-determination, that whoever lives in the place asking to be a state has come forward with, you know, a, a chorus of the people that live there and say, this is what we want. We want to be a state. We've determined what status that we want and we want congress to recognize that status that we've selected for ourselves. And so DC has done that. DC is following what's called the Tennessee plan, which is when you get your whole get your whole thing together, you like write your constitution, you figure out uh, you know how you want to elect people to congress, you figure out how many people you want in your state legislature, you do all that stuff and then you take a vote on it. So we did that too. We took a vote on the statehood plan. And I think over 87% of the people who voted on it voted in favor of D.C. statehood. So the final part of that plan is to go to Congress and say, we're ready. We we all want to be a state. We're ready to be a state. And we have the entire state package all ready to go. All you have to do is approve it. And so that's what the statehood bill pending in Congress does. It approves what the people of D.C. want, what we've determined for ourselves, what we want. So if you compare that to like Puerto Rico and the territories, that has not happened. That hasn't happened in Puerto Rico and it hasn't happened in the territories. I think like, for example, the U.S. Virgin Islands, I think, have only taken a vote on statehood once and it was in the early 90s. And it's unclear how that turned out. It is true that Puerto Rico has taken votes on statehood in the past, but it's been very fraught. And I don't presume to be an expert on Puerto Rican statehood, but There were boycotts of a vote. There was Mm -hmm. uh, a recent vote where the pro statehood candidate had it added at the last minute to try to goose turnout for his own reelection. And so there but there hasn't been this whole thing where they like have a commission that puts together a constitution that like decides that they either want to be a state or they want independence or they want something else. That hasn't happened in Puerto Rico. There is a bill pending on Puerto Rican self-determination. It was introduced by Nidia Velasquez and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, both of New York. And that is a bill that I think is very worthy of supporting because that gets Puerto Rico into a very like comprehensive process mm-hmm. where they can all speak you know, together and say, this is what we want. Either we want to be a state or we want some other status. And then you kind of go from there. So I understand the desire to add more states, but we really need to listen to the people who are being directly affected. And if they're not saying they want to be a state, that's like not something that we get to decide for them.
1: Well, in the vein of let's not lean on altruism or invent altruism where it doesn't exist. Like, I think that it is important to discuss how we feel about the residents of Washington, D.C. But I also think there's an argument that this is beneficial for the entire country and doesn't have to just be about us all, you know, Feeling altruistic towards the citizens of D.C., <laughs> which is the structural inequalities in the Senate, and you lay out a case that this this doesn't just get at the the right of self determination of the people of Washington D.C., which truly should be enough. But let's just <laughs> let's 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 play cynic for today and say that there's other reasons to add Washington D.C. as a state, and one of them is the majority minority issue we have in the United States Senate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was designed to give a lot of power to states where very few people live. So it, that sort of inequity is baked in to the design of the Senate. So that's why you have, you know, California, which has like 55 million people that live there, has the exact same representation in the Senate as Wyoming, which has even fewer people living it than the District of Columbia. They have like 600,000 people living there. And it was designed that way on purpose. It was, a you know, a kind of a compromise. To ensure that, you know, states that wanted to keep slavery would not be overruled by senators from more populous states. So it's kind of rooted in white supremacy and that that persists to this day. You know, the only way to fix it, the only way to make the Senate more representative is by adding more states. And here you have a state ready to go. The District of Columbia, we're ready to go. We're asking. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it both has the effect of of enfranchising the people of the District of Columbia, but it also has the effect of making the Senate more functional by making it more representative. I mean, I think we're in a situation now where, you know, I think you kind of hear people say, oh, the country is so divided. I, you know, I actually don't think that that's true. The, the country is not divided. We're, we're all basically in kind of agreement within certain parameters of how we want the future of the country to work. Uh, it's the Congress that's divided. And the reason that Congress is divided is because of the way, you know, the way that maps are drawn, the way that the Senate is designed. The the Senate is 50-50 right now, not because the country is 50-50. The Senate is 50-50 right now because the the Senate is designed badly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Democrats get tens of millions more votes than Republicans do every election. And yet, you know, the the best we could do this Congress was a 50-50 split. That, That wouldn't be the case if, everyone who lives in the United States was actually represented uh, in the Senate.
2: So, Megan, how can listeners who feel passionately about supporting D.C. who don't actually live in the district be helpful in D.C.'s pursuit of statehood?
0: Yeah, well, the first thing you can do is check and see if your senator is a co-sponsor of the statehood bill. That's all online. Every Democrat supported it last time, except for a few, which were Joe Manchin, uh, Kirsten Sinema, and Angus King of Maine. Mm. Um, so it would be great to get those three in support of DC statehood. This is re- a really critical democracy reform, and it's a racial justice issue. And we have a trifecta now. So we are running out of time to make this happen. This is kind of a once-in-a-generation opportunity to make this happen. So check and see if you, if your senator is a co-sponsor. Well, if our senator Republican is Mitch McConnell senator, and Rand Paul. And so I don't need to check, outlocked. but I appreciate it. <laughs> And and if, you know, they're a lost cause, then um, I think the best you can do is just keep talking to, you know, people around you about how important it is. A lot a lot of people think it's kind of weird. Maybe some people still think it's kind of a fringe thing, but it's not. D.C. is a real mm-hmm. place with real people that live in it. We're not all lawyers or bureaucrats or whatever. You know, we're a bunch of different types of people. Well, and even the that, poor
1: lawyers and bur- bureaucrats, speaking I it, as a former lawyer and bureaucrat that lived there, we <laughs> still right. have the right to self-determination. That's right.
0: I'm a lawyer too, and we still have the right to a voice in the Senate. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's just an important, it's a super important issue. You know, and if your senator is a co-sponsor, just call them up and thank them. It's just really important that people know that folks are paying attention outside of the D.C. area, and that it's important to everybody.
1: Well, Megan, I'm wondering, as the director of democracy policy, if there's any other sort of democracy reforms. I'm very passionate about proportionate representation. Mm. I think that's what's broken right now. I mean, yeah. I, if you are in Cal, this is my favorite statistic. If you're in California. And you have 40 million people in your state and you have 80 state representatives. That's not going to work. Yeah. Or like, did you see the the county of L.A., one county commissioner per four million people? My <laughs> like, yeah. Guys, this 435 at the congressional level, like that's another number we need to release our death grip on because it's not in the Constitution and it's really not serving us.
0: Yeah, I think people don't know you can change the number of House members through legislation. You don't, it's not in the number 435 is not in the Constitution. No. So it's probably better to, you know, revisit that number, see if it makes sense. I don't think that it does. I think you're right that, um, you know, I think Chicago, the whole city of Chicago, which has like X million people that live in it, only have two members of Congress for like the whole city. That doesn't make uh. any sense. It's, mil- it's millions and millions of people that live there, you know, and they are dealing with the same amount of representation as much more sparsely populated mm-hmm. areas. So that would go a long way to of making sure that the set, uh, excuse me that the house of representatives actually rep- is representative of mm-hmm. of the country because right now that that's not not really the case. So I think you need to do two things. One is um just like you say provide more so they're called like multi-member districts. You'd have more than one member per district, but then you'd also need to increase the number of people uh, the number of members of Congress in the House, so that you like, no one state would
1: get kind of the short shrift. Mm-hmm. Of so we're not moving the same 435 members around exactly. all the time. Oh, yeah, we exactly. it's so Yeah, yeah.
0: So yeah, there's that. Uh, <laughs> there's lo- there's lots of really. <laughs> yeah, good Yeah, when I said which forms. one did you love, I meant can
1: we talk about the one I love? Yeah. But-
0: that's important. So I, I don't know that there is a bill pending on that. There is a bill pending uh, or there was last Congress. It was introduced by Don Beyer. It, at the time, it was called H.R. 4000, which sounds super futuristic and very cool. Uh, hopefully he reintroduces it this Congress. And then we're hoping that some representative somewhere will be interested in increasing the number of uh, House seats, too, so that we can kind of solve that puzzle as mm-hmm. as well, because that's going to become a bigger issue over over time as well as more and more people move to cities and the number of people kind of shrinks in certain states and grows in other states. You just want to make sure that the representation is proportional.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show, Megan. Democracy reform, D.C. statehood, the structural inequalities. This, and it sounds weird to say, like, those are our favorite things to talk about. But really, they are <laughs> favorite things. It just because those are the reforms that matter. Those are the reforms, I think, that could get really good at so many other issues. Like you said, like racial inequality, um, income inequality, all these different issues we all struggle with better representation starts to chip away at that
0: yeah i agree i could talk about democracy for hours so i'm happy to stop here (laughs) (laughs) but thanks so much for having me on today
2: thank you megan sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get twenty-five percent off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start ritual or add Haya Sarah to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh
2: We're so grateful that Megan joined us. Outside of politics, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with our bodies and how we're thinking about them as we come out of this languishing period that we discussed last week. Yeah, I don't know
1: if I'm coming out of it. I I, I certainly hope so. The world seems to be pushing me out of it, whether I want to exit the languishing period or not. Um, The pace of life is picking up and uh, spring has sprung except for the snow last week and then t- tomorrow is like 80 degree hot. It's fine. Everyone's confused. But with spring and with sort of the fully vaccinated opportunities open to us and life opening back up, I think my husband and I are definitely looking to pay a little bit closer attention to our health. I also just think I'm so far behind on my COVID trends, here it is at like a year out of lockdown and I'm buying my first matching sweatsuit and we finally caved and got a Peloton, which was really hard. And we thought about it a lot. My husband was pretty opposed because it is a huge investment. But maybe my waiting a year to see how everybody, you know, how it played out with everybody and their Peloton paid off, because I just felt like I was hearing from one person after the other, after the other, That was like, no, I really, I really do use it. I don't drape my clothes on it. I love it. It makes me feel so much better. I'm turning 40 this year. I know y'all probably heard this from me once or twice. And I just feel like my metabolism, like just needs a little, just a little shove, like a little, a little stepladder or two. So we're excited. We're very excited that it's coming. And um, we both hope that it works the magic, that it seems to be working in other people's lives. I mean, I I just have to order it and put it in my house, Right. That's it. That's like the whole peloton journey. I don't actually have to get on it, do I?
2: I don't think that that's how it's going to go for you, Dang Sarah. It. But you can let us know. Forty has been the catalyst for me, too. Mm-hmm. Just I'm, and as we've talked about before, I'm really thrilled to be forty. I feel very settled. I'm the happiest mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. ever been. I'm so content, and so now I'm just kind of in the mode of thinking about how do I live this next half, or hopefully a little bit more than half of my life, well as well as is available to me, as we like to say Mm -hmm, here. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, How do I have the most years that I can get within my control with my beautiful family and wonderful friends? And so I've had a lot of blood work done lately to try to give me some clues on what changes I might be able to make to just increase my energy level and how I feel. We talked a lot about this on the Nightly Nuance last week. and. What I kind of wanted to share today is that, I mean, most of you know, like, I have been a large person the entirety of my life. I am a plus size person. Um, I have had periods where I've tried a lot of dieting and a lot of different things, and I just kind of always settle back in on I'm, I'm just a large person. It has been really transformative for me recently to think about my health completely divorced from my weight. I think mm-hmm. I've gotten to a place where I look at my life and myself and think, if I am this size forever, what a wonderful life I've had. It doesn't take anything away from me at all to have been larger than the standard person and, and larger than kind of the BMI that doctors always want you to handle. Like I, I fully am convinced that we have created a lot of suffering uh, by a relentless focus on weight and mm-hmm. i think the health at any size movement has been really important um so for me i am not interested in like generic weight loss i'm interested in what are my particular risks and what can i do to lower those particular risks to the best of my ability and so For the next 30 days, I'm eating completely gluten-free and dairy-free. Those are the big changes. There are lots of smaller ones too, just particular foods that I showed sensitivity to. I'm working with health professionals who I really trust in part because they've told me none of this is magic or perfectly scientific and it's gonna be a lot of trial and error. But our big focus for me is reducing inflammation. And I just can't believe how much easier it is to make these really significant changes in how I eat Because I'm not oriented to weight loss in the process. It's been a major, major difference from even the last time, you know, I tried to make a shift in in my nutrition.
1: Well, I just think for me, anytime there's just a mere hint of deprivation, my whole body is like, oh, I don't think so. No, thank you. Um, and that's with exercise or with diet. Like, I just, I cannot orient myself that way. I think a lot about Gretchen Rubin's, like, are you a moderator or an abstainer? I think that's like a really helpful framework. And, you know, I'm not an abstainer. I have to feel like I can do it if I want to. Um, I can eat it if I want to. You know, I can take a day off exercise if I want to. But, you know, as, as exactly like you say, I'm so grateful for this body. I want to take good care of it. And I think you know, the older you get, the more care it needs. And that's okay. That's totally okay. And I'm trying to like have some real gentleness around, like, it's okay that I have to spend a lot more time thinking about my body and caring for my body and, you know, paying attention to what works and what doesn't for me. Because I think it is a, it's an act of love, right? It's a, an act of gratitude. And that's what I feel profoundly um, for my body profoundly for my body and especially, you know, what it's what it's been through over the last 40 years. And so I just you know, I think that's sort of why the the Peloton became appealing to me is because it just felt like people were having fun. Like I read an article about it, like exercises entertainment, like the new the new frontier of exercises entertainment. And I thought, oh, well, that's not how I've heard it written about before. And that seems really exciting. I mean, I saw that people were like really into it and did seemingly like have fun and got their instructors and were like really like hooked on certain people. But something about that approach and just feeling like this is this is a holistic and sort of integral approach to all facets of health instead of something we're just trying to beat into submission, which not here for, do not enjoy that orientation. It's just so, it's really, really appealing to me.
2: I've been looking for a walking partner, I feel like for my whole life. And mm-hmm. one of my neighbors and I have started walking together now. And it is amazing to me how much farther I can go when I have a friend with me <laughs> than when I'm mm-hmm. by myself. Even if I'm listening to something great that I'm really absorbed in, when I'm by myself, I kind of get to like, I'm hot. My back hurts. I'm ready to be done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when, do, when am I going to turn around? I think I'm going to turn around now. And with my friend who's going with me, it's just like we get out there and we're just chatting and all of a sudden, we look at the we look at our phones and we're like, "Oh, we've been gone like two hours. We should probably turn around now, you know." We to <laughs> um, and it's really, really nice. And I bring that up because I think that what I hear in people who really love their Peloton is like they they have a sense of other people are doing this with me, yeah, and I'm kind of sure. part of something that is really motivating. And I think that connection element feels like doing something good for your body too. More Mm -hmm. than just the calories you burn or the flexibility or the strength that you're acquiring, that social input, I think, is really is really important and especially important as we're getting older. So, you know, I don't I, I do feel very gentle about this whole thing, but like you said, it also feels like a welcome moment to kind of shift my focus to my physical being instead of, I love the TED talk that says um, that we treat our bodies like they're taxis for our brains. That mm-hmm. is 100% what I've spent my life doing. And it's, it's well, good to shift that.
1: I, I love this because Ezra Klein had an expert on addiction and anxiety on a show and I thought it was so helpful. And he was talking about how, you know, there's three, there's three parts of the process when we engage in a behavior. It's the trigger, it's the behavior, it's the reward. And we think we can intellectualize our way out of the trigger. Like we're obsessed with the trigger and we think that we can just think our way out of it. Like we have this, this, this idea of free will, which is silly at best, toxic at worst. And he's like, the trigger is like the least important part. The part is the reward. And so if you, especially like on those walks that we were all, and listen, still take, still love, still love the Aaron Moon's trademark stupid walk. Love it. Because there was, I was with my husband, we were engaging in like that was so being outside was incredibly rewarding. I think the, the like being in your body and paying attention to, how food makes you feel. Uh, he had a great conversation about pizza and how many slices of pizza, like really feeling like, was this pizza this particular first slice of pizza better than how I will feel the next day? Was the second piece of pizza? I think just like being in our bodies and letting our bodies talk to us instead of thinking we're going to talk our bodies out of it, which I think is what we do.
2: We hope that in whatever way you might be um, emerging from languishing or languishing, um, mm-hmm. but looking for something to be enriching as you do. Um, And thank you again to Adam Grant for that phrase that has resonated so much with everyone Mm -hmm. um, that you're finding things that are really helpful and supportive. We'd love to hear about what those are on social media and Patreon and email, whatever way you like to communicate with us. We will be back in your ears on Friday to talk about what these hundred days of the Biden administration have looked like and what we might expect from here on out. Have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise
1: Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
2: Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers.
1: Sherry Blim, Martha Brunitsky.
2: Linda Daniel.
1: Allie Edwards.
2: Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller.
1: Helen Handley.
2: Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Green! Lori Ladau, Lily McClure,
0: David McWilliams, Jared Minson,
2: Emily Neasley,
1: Danny Osmond,
2: Tony the the Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph,
1: Jeremy Sequoia,
2: Karen True, Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and
1: Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreoncom pantsuitpolitics
2: You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.